Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Wales Arts Review podcast. Hello, a Croesoy Wales Arts Review podcast. I'm Josie. And I'm Rosie and we're your hosts. This week we're thinking about landscapes, both political and geographical, from the topographies of Welsh thrillers and the limitations of horror to a reflection on Wales's Brexit voting. In our first segment, we talk to Gareth Smith about his reviews of two crime thrillers, S4C's Arangwedfa and BBC One's Welsh-made series The Pact, thinking about the efficacy of formulas and codes, as well as the relationship between genre and place. In our second segment, we discuss Nia Edwards-Behi's exploration of the term post-horror, questioning the existence of the concept of post-horror in and of itself, and thinking about the potentialities of horror beyond a critical snobbery. We also look at Martha O'Brien's review of Rachel Trezise's Easy Meat, a return to the 2016 referendum through the eyes of Caleb Jenkins, exploring Wales's relationship to the EU, examining class concerns and the decipher control, and if we can definitively say why Wales voted leave. Finally, we'll be letting you know what projects and events you should be looking out for in our What's on Wales segment. we sat down with Gareth Smith, a regular contributor to the Wales Arts Review and English Literature PhD researcher at Cardiff University, to talk about his reviews of S4C's Aram Gwedfa and BBC One's Welsh-made series The Pact. We talk about the sometimes formulaic nature of the crime and thriller genre, the relationship between genre and Welshness, and much, much more. Uh, so thank you for joining us today, Gareth. Thank you for helping me back on the podcast. <laughs> so um, today we're talking about a couple of thrillers, crime shows that you've been reviewing for us. And in a couple of reviews that you've written for the Wales Arts Review, you mentioned the sort of typical formula for television thrillers. And you emphasised that Ira Amgwedva is not just a collection of cliches, while your discussion of The Pact suggests that the show is haunted by a sense of deja vu. So for the uninitiated... What does the formula for a crime or thriller television programme usually look like? In the last few years, there have been um, a lot of very similar types of dramas, because I know that the crime dramas have always been popular and thrillers have always been popular. Um, and I think you can look at some of these recent dramas and the ones I've been reviewing, and maybe plot-wise, they're not identical, but I do think there's a sort of pattern now, maybe with the structure of them, the sort of tone of them, and the aesthetics as well. Um, so I think typically these sort of thrillers then, they tend to focus on one mystery for the length of a series. Um, I think they're quite indebted to things like sort of the domestic noir sort of genre, um, and there'll usually be an emphasis on either sort of an individual caught up in an investigation or sort of uncovering secrets about their friends and family. Um, yeah, so I don't think that it's so much that it's the same story all the time, but it seems quite similar types of stories. And I suppose like with S4C, I was realising that I, I've been trying to keep an eye on their new dramas this year. And it's only when I realised that it's the same sort of dramas that tend to be they tend to be making this year. So there haven't been any sort of comedy dramas or romantic dramas or period dramas. It's all been crime dramas. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, I suppose that's a bit of a long-winded way of saying that, you know, there's, it's not as if the same shows are being made, but it's that, like, I know Rosie will have a better idea about that whole, like, domestic noir genre, and it's sort of, like, 
you know, its popularity and its influence and things like that. But but I think it's those sort of elements, it's like the themes, the the look of it a lot, things like that. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about how um, like the missing woman or missing girl is like a real a real common trope mm. across a lot of these kind of narratives. You re- referred to domestic noir in one of your reviews, and are you are you finding that like across these kind of shows that you're watching that most of them are based kind of in the home or in the workplace? Those are the kinds of settings. Yeah, I think, yeah, the majority are. I think there's sort of, I'm wondering if there's like a mix of influences in these type of dramas. And I think one is the sort of domestic noir. And then I've only recently started watching The Killing, which mm-hmm. even though it's from 2007, I, I get the feeling that that continues to sort of really influence crime dramas now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think that, yeah, there's a big emphasis. It was like like in the pact, you know, while there was a sort of police investigation going on on the side, it was much more focused on the response within the home, within the workplace to the mystery, um, mm-hmm. which I think it can be great. And I usually really enjoy those type of stories. I, I just sort of thought with the pack that I just felt like I'd seen it all before. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes those kind of that look, like you said, the aesthetic and the kind of tropes can be a bit um, repetitive. Um, that was something I was thinking of as well. Um, I know there's a lot of like Scandinavian noir well, and stuff is, like that as well. So, so, so the killing because the killing was oh. originally Scandi, um, right, and yeah. it was. So I'm also thinking of the 2013 show Hinterland. Oh um, uh, yeah, which um, kind of is a Welsh take on that Scandi noir, but it was. I think it was the broadcaster of the killing um, actually bought sort of the rights to because. They were really interested in it, but I thought Hinterland, and we'll come back to this because I I really enjoyed Hinterland, and we have a question a bit on on Welsh and well like Welshness and how does Wales lend itself to it. But Hinterland for me was kind of like a I don't know maybe have you seen Hinterland, Gareth? Just I think the first two episodes. Yeah, it's quite like dark, but not like content wise. Yes, because it's a police procedural sort of program, but also like dark in its aesthetic it's very sort of gray um yeah. kind of really draws on that if you think of things like wallander and stuff really sort of draws on those tropes that that scandi noir uses but it was the first time that i'd seen a sort of welsh crime program or a crime program say in wales that then didn't sort of have welsh people as like the stupid characters or the like yeah. protecting the sort of community secrets was part of the community rather than a Welsh thing if that makes sense like a, you're an outsider whereas because I think all of the police officers are Welsh in it there's good the kind of challenges that thing where you sometimes get English police officers going into Wales and it's like you're not welcome here and they really stereotype that up mm. yeah so across your reviews, Gareth, it seemed that um so you clearly you enjoyed one of these series more than the other. So your kind of review of Ur and Giesva was perhaps more favorable than the one of the pact. And so what what makes Ur and Giesva kind of stand out from shows like the pact? And what might that tell us about the genre and its its future? I thought the um Arangiedva just seemed to uh to me, offer something slightly different to what I feel like we're getting very used to. Um, I looked up a, an interview with the creator, and, um, and she described it as um, a heritage thriller, which yeah. was not, a, yeah, not a term I'd come across before, but even that, I think, made it a little bit more exciting than 
than the pact which all the sort of elements of that i mean i only watched the first two episodes of the pact and then gave up um mm-hmm. but based on those two um episodes it just felt a lot more sort of formulaic than um yeah i'm not quite sure where the aram uh, was going to go and I, I think like you said it's that sense of I think because this sort of crime thriller is the sort of dominant genre on TV at the moment, I think like it's going to have to find new areas to go to sort of keep people interested. Because um, yeah. it is, it's a genre I really enjoy. I've always enjoyed mysteries and thrillers, but I don't want to see the same things over and over again. So yeah, I just found, I found the characterization sort of stronger in around Yedva. Um, I thought the writing was better, but yeah, also just primarily by sort of focusing so much on the museum, um, and again, I don't know, I've only seen the first episode, but it seemed like they were focusing on areas like, you know, the museum as a sort of space where history is created rather than just sort of reflected. Mm. And there were sort of conversations about the artworks there. And yeah, I just thought it could go in different directions to uh, just sort of five episodes of people getting threatening text messages and, and sort of, all, you know, meeting in the woods and all of that sort of yeah i was thinking i don't know if this is quite right and i might be kind of really telling on myself here but i feel like a lot of noir is about like um the threat of modernity sometimes and so to have a kind of thriller or crime drama that is kind of this interrogation of the past and like the past within an institution that seems really interesting but then again saying that all kind of mysteries and stuff are looking back at something that that's happened as well aren't they so maybe i'm well, I am tying myself up and not well, saying. Well, no, I get what you're saying because <laughs> because I also think that the the looking back is also partly a looking forward because you're trying to find, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think thinking of like the Scandi dramas that I've watched, there is a kind of I wouldn't say like modernity is interesting because like a lot of the kind of killers and stuff tend to end up in these big fancy like houses that kind of go against sort of I'm thinking of like architecture specifically here and it's use in mm. uh, like p- place and setting right often it's kind of these elaborate modern quite houses. gothic almost yeah versus then the sort of like farms and sheds that certain people live in that are often like the sort of innocent people and then um, the kind of like the police side of it is a lot more like slick usually, isn't it? Yeah, like to an grey, clean I mean, lines. But but I think what I I enjoy so much, obviously we're not talking about Welsh. Well, mind you, Hinterland as well. I think that's one of the reasons why I liked Hinterland is I kind of like the portrayal of a kind of gritty, grumpy police officer that doesn't always know everything. I kind of hate that 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 sort of police trope of like having the sort of brilliant mind who's kind of set off from everyone else i think when you look at things like wallander hinterland um and maybe in these shows as well you have someone who is just genuinely trying to get to the bottom of something they don't have all the answers and i think that i don't know i think that makes for better writing i mean it's interesting that you said about writing as well gareth because i wonder if like (laughs) writing could be better i get really bored with crime shows just because I'm getting really good at guessing who it is in like the first five minutes. Because once you yeah. understand like the structure of a show, you can kind of go, well, this would be interesting. It's probably that person. And then it is that person. This is why I couldn't really watch Luther anymore because I watched like three seasons and my dad told me to stop spoiling it. Cause in the first <laughs> 10 minutes I'd be like, is that person? And he's like, you can't know that. And I'm like, but it is. If I was writing yeah. it, this is what it would be. And maybe we need someone who thinks a bit more out of the box than I do. <laughs> to yeah, because you, you, 
you become like acclimatized to the the cues, don't you? And even like the the twists on the cues of who would be doing the thing. Yeah, right? like I mean, you know, if we're gonna go look at things like you know um, NCIS or um, what's the other one, Law and Order and stuff. Those mm. shows are so formulaic that you always know it's the second person that they interview, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, but you kind of watch those not just for the crime anymore. It's kind of just, like, on TV. So when you get these programs that are sort of one-offs, you kind of want that to be elevated. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think you're right. Because they, yeah, because I get the feeling that sort of TV shows where it's a, a mystery per episode a sort of not that fashionable at the moment and it becomes like you said all about the mystery then mm. if that starts to fall apart that's the main reason for watching the entire show and i think th- that's been like some of the biggest disappointments of these like big expensive crime dramas where you start to see the mystery sort of running out of steam quite early on and then it's a bit like what's the point in watching the rest of it mm. um yeah whereas like you said when it's a bit more sort of when it's like an episode format and it's sort of refreshing every week then it's not you don't get as invested um, so I think it, it can make the the good ones excellent then when they've come up with a really well structured mystery. Um, but and again, that's a bit how I felt with the pact is once you started watching it, you could start to see what was coming up, and that sort of ruined it for me then. Yeah, I hate when you can can guess. I was just looking up a show that I watched recently where it was quite good. Um, I think it was partly set in Scotland, and these two sort of families live not far from each other on a farm. And I was like, I couldn't guess what was happening there. Mm. Um, mm. I have to try and remember the name of the TV show. But I think part of it as well is, I mean, this is this kind of goes into our next question. So I'll raise it in the next question. But um, so in your first look at the pact, you write, it feels mean spirited to criticize a show that makes great use of a predominantly Welsh cast and features local scenery to beautiful effect. Sadly, this makes everything all the more disappointing. Um, so can you speak a little bit to this feeling of disappointment? And I'll raise my question about Wales and Welshness as well at this point, but is there something about Wales or Welshness that would particularly lend itself to this genre when executed well? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure necessarily that there's anything about Wales and and Welshness that lends itself particularly to a crime drama. I mean, I think that what things like The Killing really started was the idea of taking a sort of landscape that people find um, sort of, you know, very sort of compelling to look at and making it part of the drama. I think that Scandi Noir thing really did that. And then TV producers in Britain must have thought, oh, where can we go in the country that will sort of have a sort of similar similar sort of landscapes or eye-catching landscapes. Um, so I think that that's maybe something that um, Wales can sort of offer that genre a little bit. But I think I was more just disappointed that, um, you know, it was a mainstream um, drama on BBC One with a predominantly Welsh cast, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, and I, and it was just that disappointment of it not being very good, or I didn't think it was very good. Um, so I think it was just the disappointment more in the fact that, um, you know, a Welsh drama that was sort of going nationwide maybe didn't really reflect the best of Welsh drama rather than because it had let the, the crime genre down. Yeah, mm. I mean... I mean, I was talking to Rosie about this sort of during the week when we were um, coming up with these questions. I I guess I was thinking as well, partly about kind of this Welshness or or Wales and and this genre is like, what happens when a genre meets a certain sort of local 
or locational identity. So like, because often the stereotypes of Welsh people portrayed in sort of national media often not great <laughs> um whether it be the kind of classically dumb or insular kind of people very sort of rejecting modern things um like does that also impact how a genre um might be written might be explored in wales yeah i mean that is one of my sort of um sort of pet peeves with with what drama set in Wales is yeah exactly as you've described that sort of the insular community and almost like sort of as if people are living a few decades behind mm. um, everywhere else. Um, I think things are, are sort of changing. Although uh, um, there was the drama called The Accident with Sarah Lancashire, uh, Lancashire with Sarah Lancashire in it um, a few years ago, and that had a similar look where all the teenagers were sort of dressed as if it was like the nineties. Um, so, um, but yeah, I think with more recent um, dramas, yeah, I mean, I think like you said, there's a chance, isn't it, when you bring that genre to Wales to sort of, yeah, to find sort of specific ways then to sort of connect the two. Yeah, and I even... just think taking all the cliches and just putting them in another setting just doesn't really accomplish anything. Especially when it's something that like crime can be such a serious genre that you then can open up serious conversations about like kind of Welsh identity, Welsh mm. kind of community and stuff in a yeah. way that isn't just like laughing at us. Mm. Um, you know, because I'm also thinking of things like, why is it that we can't get, say, like a broad church set in Wales? Mm. And part of that, I think, is because of those stereotypes that people like maybe writers feel they need to play up to be like, look, we're in Wales. And it's like, but you didn't need to play up any um, stereotypes yeah. of the people in, I think, is Bournemouth where Broadchurch is. Or, yeah, I think so. Or, oh. you know, I was reading, um, I think it was Cara's interview with Katie Wicks, mm. I believe the author of Delicacy, that memoir that's recently come out online. And she was talking about the show Under the Skin. Oh no, was it called that? Or was it In My Skin? Oh yeah. Um, Do you remember? In, I think. Yeah, I know we definitely spoke about it, Gary. I think it was In My Skin, because Under the Skin is that one about Scarlett Johansson, she's an alien. <laughs> that's not that one. Um, but um, I think they basically said something along the lines of how, um, so Katie Wicks was watching it and she was thinking, oh, this is really, there's something really weird about this. But it was just the fact that it was set in Wales and everyone was Welsh and it wasn't like a thing. That's just where it was, right? Yeah, which I think we should embrace a bit more. I kind of, this is why, I know my mum and I always struggle to watch things set in Wales because often it's making fun of Welsh people. Yeah, and, Like yeah. intentionally or unintentionally, it's still playing up these stereotypes and tropes of Welsh people that I think are very, one, unimaginative, but also very uninnovative when it comes to then the genre that you're working with. I think that's why I found the fact that Eram um, Gwedva is set in the museum because you have such a specific setting that works then with I assume what is going to happen in the show that is very Welsh but also in a in a way reflects both history and modernity of Wales. Mm. Do you think that you know conversations around police abolition and like how does that fit with the future of crime dramas because I, I feel quite like I don't really like watching things to do with the police. I would find it quite hard to like root for the police and watching a series. Do you know what I mean? What are you always saying? 
I guess it's less about the police and more about the characters, though. As much yeah. as, as much as you're watching it, you're also watching it. I mean, Gareth, feel free to jump in. <laughs> I feel like we're speaking loads, and you're on. I sometimes feel like that these shows present individual police officers as like flawed individuals, but they're never critical. I, I might be really wrong, but like they never seem that critical of the institution broadly well, in the so way that like I think this was the thing with Line of Duty and like yeah. Line of Duty in its final season. Obviously, as are you guys watching it? Would would you watch it? Watched it. Yeah, already. it's like I really enjoyed Line of Duty, and then the last season I was a bit let down because you kind of want you kind of want them to get a certain man, a certain person, right? right? But the whole kind of comment was that, like, it's not any one person that is corrupt in the police. It's that the whole system itself is corrupt and corruption will still continue. It's not about organised crime units infiltrating the police. It's just that police will look the other way when someone does something wrong. Like, everybody is kind of complicit in the corruptness. Yeah, so there is space for that kind of critique as well. There is space for it, but I think it's also whether then people want that critique. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, I think, because it's such a broadly popular genre. And, I mean, I I feel like politics about abolishing the police are kind of quite left-wing and maybe you don't really get that crossover of audiences that much. I don't know. With crime as with like so many other genres when you're watching it on tv you want escapism yeah so i think people true. are not like yeah comes back down to that thing though doesn't it this i find this conflict so often between do we want something that like truly reflects the realities that we experience or do we want to watch something that is escapist but then runs the risk of not representing certain realities and it's mm. that thing you know mm. Yeah, I definitely think with Line of Duty, because I've heard people say what, what you just said, Josie, which is the that idea at the end of, like, corruption is just endemic, so it's sort of, um, you know, there is no one person to catch, which I, I do think is great, but I don't think that was the plan. I think the, the writer just ran out of an actual This ending. is the thing. I think he wrote himself into a corner and didn't actually know yeah. who to, because it was like, who can be that sort of fourth person? Exactly, yeah. And I, I think, think so I would have loved that ending a lot more if I thought, oh, this is where it was always meant to go, whereas actually I just think... Exactly. I mean, the last season anyway just felt really hashed and, like, it was about fucking catchphrases and stuff, and I was like, oh. yeah. This isn't this isn't what like earlier seasons of Line of Duty, which are very good, like are about that kind of the issues of police officers either coming forward to report something that's gone wrong and then them getting shunned or left out of a policing community. So there's all these kind of tensions around that. I mean, going back to this question though about um Wales, Welshness, like lending itself to a genre, I mean part of me also wonders, is it that we need more Welsh people in the writer's room. Yeah, I think that um, that definitely plays a part. And I'm wondering whether, you know, I haven't sort of loved every um, S4C drama that I've watched, but I do wonder whether um, sometimes then having having the sort of Welsh writers almost as a certainty then if it's a, a Welsh language drama mm. and a, a Welsh cast can just... I think it's more about a confidence thing because I obviously... You know, there's nothing wrong with obviously having English people in Welsh dramas or or necessarily they're having English um, actors doing Welsh accents in dramas. 
but I just think the issues are one, if accents aren't done well, that is something I, I really, really hate. And I also just wonder whether it makes it look like if if it always has to be that a, a more famous English actor is brought in, either doing an accent they can't really do or not, into like a, a mainly Welsh drama, does it make it look as if you know, or yeah, like people across Britain won't watch a drama set in Wales with just Welsh people. We need a bigger name. We need someone else in this to get people to watch it. So I think, I do think like decisions like casting and obviously like people behind the camera as well, that, that must make a difference. Because just find, you know, watching some dramas um, either set in Wales or, or with sort of Welsh characters where they get actors in who cannot do the accent and it's just embarrassing to watch. Oh, I, it reminds me of, I was watching, um, it was on Netflix, it was White House Farm, which is based oh, on a on a real, have you watched it? I, yeah, I'm still processing it, to be honest. Yeah, but it, it was getting in what's his face. So Stephen Graham, who is like a Liverpudlian actor, who's like, oh he got a very, a very thick Liverpudlian accent, right? And he's playing a Welshman. And it's Weird. just like the worst accent. I was just sat watching it just being like, no. <laughs> he, he's, he's playing literally a guy called DCI Taff Jones. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Part of me wonders, you know how, <laughs> this is going very off track, Gareth, I apologise. <laughs> you know how novels, you can get those kind of honesty readers for novels where you set them outside of like your own sort of cultural background. Mm -hmm. So so you say you're writing about Hong Kong, but you're someone who's lived in Britain your whole life. You can hire like, an, I think they're called honesty readers, where they read it as someone who is from Hong Kong and would go, we wouldn't use that phrasing or like we wouldn't do things these certain ways so that it helps you kind of actually stay true to then or to get closer to what that culture what that sort of locational identity does um and they're often used for like writers who are like west writers who are writing about the east trying mm. to sort of so you, you're not falling into the cultural appropriation trap if that makes sense and it's like maybe we need then honesty readers for scripts to be able to go i'm not sure someone in a valley's community would behave that way if an english person walked in like that mm. that's the thing i think depends on the audience doesn't it as well because it kind of depends on whether the audience that they're going for are people who are going to be alert to things like that and mm. so I guess it depends if they're really aiming for Welsh people to be their core audience or if we're an afterthought kind of thing. You know? Yeah, but I think like part of me feels that more, and I mean, maybe I'm wrong, Gareth, maybe you can sort of add in here, but maybe Welsh people, more Welsh people would get want to get involved with a sort of broadcasting media career mm if they knew they were going to be taken seriously and you can't be taken seriously if the images that you see on screen are the ones that set you up as the dumb person or the insular person, the backwards person. Mm. Or maybe even that makes people want to want to get into those careers even more in order to change that maybe. kind of perspective at the same time. I don't know, because I've watched a lot recently over the last few months of either sort of Welsh language dramas or dramas set in Wales um yeah and i i don't know i think for me like the main problem i sort of identify is a lot of the time is sort of casting it's a weird like bugbear of mine with this thing of um so i think definitely you know there are sort of really limited depictions of sort of welsh communities um in general but i do think things are getting better on that front i think the main thing that annoys me now is you can sometimes have these really well written dramas 
um, citing Wales. And I, like I said, I, I see it as a sort of almost like a lack of confidence in Welsh talent that they will get actors in. Um, and I just think it sort of takes something away from from the drama. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that seems to be the issue that, that sort of keeps bothering me really is... You know, I mean, White House Farm wasn't set in Wales, but that was just like, it was almost like a joke that you could think you could do that bad of an accent and that it just gets to stay in the drama. I mean, I, I honestly don't know why. It, You know, it was a sort of dramatisation of a, and I know his nickname was Taff Jones. <laughs> um, I don't know why they didn't just, after hearing Stephen Graham's accent, go like, just, just use your own accent because... You know, like a lot of people living in North Wales, sort of close to the border, their accents are very scouts anyway. Yeah, I mean, you just so, have to talk to my brother, so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, oh, yeah. I, I just, I think it's it's that that seems to annoy me at the moment, because I think like finally, maybe over the last few years, there is a bigger push to, uh, to have better representations of, of Wales on TV. Um so to me, uh, that's not so much the issue at the moment. It, it's then, once they've done that, it's like, oh, now we'll get a bunch of people in um, and they, they'll give their best Welsh accent a go and we'll see. Um, and I don't, I think there's enough, you know, I mean, you know, watching things like Graham Giedva, um, you know, Nia Roberts is such a, a good actress and I've seen her in a lot of things. She could easily have been playing the role in um, the accident that Sarah Lancashire took, mm. you know, I just think, yeah, it's almost like deep down, maybe uh, there's that still that sense of like, like I said, a lack of confidence then in, in Welsh drama. Mm. I just keep like picturing it, like Stephen Graham starts doing the accent and everyone's just too embarrassed to tell him how bad it is. It's, it's just like, my whole oh my series. God, please go, uh, go and watch it because I remember sitting there and I'm going, is he meant to be Welsh? Because it, like, what? <laughs> it was I'm just, gonna watch it. It was just... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great... I didn't love the TV, like, the series. It was okay. Um, mm. But, like, yeah, I was just like, why have you done this? Just just let him be, let him be Scouse. Just let yeah. him be Scouse. <laughs> so, so, with all of this in mind then, Gareth, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? So, kind of, might be crime thrillers more broadly or other Welsh dramas? Yeah, um... There's one um, S4C drama, um, which is on uh, Click, which is C-L-I-C, um, which is the S4C um, iPlayer. I think I'm the only person using it, uh, potentially. <laughs> but yeah, Flam is a, um, a, another sort of thriller. But again, it's sort of set um, in a sort of slightly different context, really. Yeah. So it's about a... A uh, woman whose husband has died, and then she starts to think that he's sort of still alive. Um, and it's sort of all very connected to food, and because she works in a, a cafe, and I think he was a chef, and that's how they met. That sounds like a really like interesting premise. This idea of like like grieving and food; those are already themes that you you don't necessarily get in like crime thrillers, do you? That sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, I thought it was good, and especially. You know, having watched some of the things more recently, uh, I think it's sort of, yeah, I think it was very underrated. Mm -hmm. um, I think the only other thing, which I, I don't know if it's still on any streaming platforms, but there's also a bilingual drama called uh, Bang, which is set in Port Albert. And I think there have been two series. The second series I didn't like as much, but the first series is very good. Mm. And it, yeah, it was one of those dramas where there are bits of it in Welsh, but obviously they're always subtitled. Um, so I think those would be the two that I would recommend. I'd recommend Hinterland just because I really loved oh, yeah. it. Because <laughs> that's set um, around Aberystwyth. 
So, um, well, thank you for joining us today, Gareth. Thank you. So today I wanted to speak about an article from 2017 and it's by Nia edwards Behe, and it's titled A Response to Post-Horror. So obviously this is about horror. It doesn't directly link to our conversation with Gareth, but I think it's another interesting exploration of genre. And the article itself, obviously it's from a few years ago now, but it's a critical conversation that I wasn't aware of at the time and perhaps something that I think we've sensed and discussed on the podcast before, but haven't had a term to to put to it, maybe. So Nia's reflecting on the term post-horror and this term was dubbed by a critic called Steve Rose in a Guardian article titled How Post-Horror Movies Are Taking Over Cinema. So the question is then, what is post-horror? And Nia writes, quote, Rose's article uses interviews with the directors of two upcoming films, It Comes at Night and A Ghost Story, as a platform to valorise what he claims to be a new genre that he dubs post-horror. His reasoning for this is that these two films, along with other recent examples such as The Witch, The Neon Demon and Personal Shopper, represent a break with the traditional rules and codes of horror films, offering up stories which are more profound and insightful than what the confines of the genre Rose deems too rigid allows. In the article, Rose handpicks past examples of auteur filmmakers who have broken beyond the apparent rigidity of horror to make the genre's masterpieces, such as Rosemary's Baby or The Shining, and suggest that it's this sensibility that these new filmmakers are tapping into, end quote. So there's this notion of picking certain horror films and deeming them as profound and insightful. And apparently at the time when Nia was writing this article, this wasn't very well received by the horror community. And Nia describes how Rose's article was, quote, met with almost immediate disdain from what might be broadly termed the horror community. That is, people who readily and frequently watch horror films, from fans to producers to critics to academics. If there was a certain sense of wariness to this minor outrage, it's simply because we've seen this sort of so-called criticism a thousand times before, end quote. And I think it's this idea that we've picked up on before, maybe. And it's something that actually, to link back to the Gareth, it comes up with the crime and thriller genre um, in literature too, and domestic noir fictions. And maybe something that we've touched on in our interview with Claire as well, the way in which sometimes certain types of films or literature aren't taken as seriously as others because they're not seen as kind of like maybe high art. Mm. So if you think about like the distinction between like the kind of horror films that, um, that this critic is talking about, so things like Neon Demon or a ghost story and compare them to something like, I don't know, we've been watching um, the Hostel films the past few nights. We haven't seen them in years. Um, and it's, it's I don't know, it's just kind of this thing of like, oh, one's high art and the other's kind of like trash. But both are telling us something, right? Yeah. But um, So go back to Nia's article. So Nia also traces this denigration of horror back through literary history, stating that, quote, the long-standing tradition of distinguishing between good and bad horror films goes beyond film history and into literary history, where some Gothic novels, whose heritage is now so revered, were sneered upon at the time for being too sensationalist. In the 1950s through to the 1970s, horror films in Britain were routinely dismissed for being too sensationalist or too extreme, 
in very similar terms to how some Gothic novels were received, end quote. And I think sometimes, as Nia also indicates, this kind of sensationalism or sense of frivolity attached to horror now and Gothic novels then comes from this idea that they're somehow detached from what Rose describes in his article as big metaphysical questions. And a large part of horror's limitations, Rose suggests, is that more than any genre, horror movies are governed by rules and codes. Mm. And that's where, like, this guy Steve Rose kind of places the limitations of horror films. But this kind of idea, Nia writes, quote, is both simultaneously incorrect and bafflingly ignorant of genre. Genres are not fixed entities. Mm. The whole point of a genre and the codes of tropes therein is to provide a framework for artists to work within. And that can mean breaking those rules as much as playing with them. Rose seems to seems to suggest that horror only works with variations on well-established themes and goes on to list a series of tropes. Tropes are not the same thing. They're roots into explorations of themes. Supernatural possession is a trope that allows for exploration of identity. Haunted houses can represent all manner of repression. Psycho killers explore the human psyche. And zombies, zombies have been the most wonderful metaphors for a whole host of societal concerns even today, when they are indeed a tired and overused trope, end quote. So again, we have this idea of horror emerging where it's so intertwined with social commentary, identity and questions of the psyche. And this isn't discussed in Nia's article, but it's like with our interview of Claire and with, I think, the female Gothic literary genre Mm. or area, these tropes can be modes of constructing like experiences of femininity, like the horrors associated with like being a woman, being have you know of a marginalised gender, and it makes those tangible, or we're able to see them through different lens. But um, to go back to the article, so Nia concludes that quote: horror is a constantly evolving genre. While some tropes never die, it is in fact horror's precise capacity to address big questions that make it such a vibrant and multifaceted pool to play in. End quote. Which I couldn't agree with more. And um, Yeah, I urge everyone to have a read of Nia's article because it's full of really interesting examples and it's much more articulate than I'm capable of being today. (laughs) (laughs) Have you you seen the Hostel films? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the thing is, like, in a weird way, I can deal with gore better than I can deal with the, the jumps. See, that's interesting because for me... I am quite bad with gore. Like, I still haven't seen the Saw films. Yeah, I, like I think it. partly because I'm like, I mean, touching wood, I always think, when is this going to happen to me? Oh, that's So, true. like, it kind of also, I'm also just like, yeah, what would happen if somebody got their Achilles sliced? <laughs> well, we've seen now. Now we know after Hostel. No, now no. we know. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so, like, far-fetched like yeah whereas i think when you get sort of thrillery stuff like jump scares being in houses and things i freak out more because it's that blurred line between my own space and the horror space yeah do you know what i mean yeah i do i do completely i think i i find the hostel film so interesting as well just thinking back because they feel really dated and they're so like they are so bad for like gender politics politics. they're awful absolutely horrendous but it's like it's still so interesting to watch these films and think what are they trying to do 
like what is this yeah what's been and done the thing here is, i just also think that it's just it's gore for gore's sake and sometimes you can enjoy that yeah. you can enjoy just like a yeah i also like how it doesn't play into the stereotypical of like what's a woman's worst nightmare of like violence to her body which is often like rape yeah. or something and in this instance 100%. it's just like i'm gonna cut you up <laughs> <laughs> the second one that we watched hostel 2 last night the second one is very like it's almost like they received loads of criticism for the first one and then they were like, right, well, we'll put loads of women in the second one because that'll make it better. And it doesn't because she just buys her way out. It's like, I'm girl boss. I'm going to yeah. girl boss my way I'm out of hostel. I'm going to my way out of getting fucking sliced <laughs> up and teeth ripped out of my face. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I can deal with that sort of stuff totally fine. I've met people who like faint and stuff at like films yeah. to show needles and things and i'm so chill with that but the minute we get into the supernatural specifically demons because of yeah. my upbringing i'm just like no it is terrifying i think once once it gets into demons with like names and stuff once it like names the demon and like puts it like into a biblical type thing i kind of think eh, not for me but when it's just this like horrible force that like is unknown, I, I'm like, oh. my whole thing is that you can't fight it. See, yeah, then this actually, <laughs> now you've said that, back to Hostel. Um, <laughs> I was saying the real horror, the real horror with Hostel, and this really gets kind of amped up in the third one, I believe, is the power, the extent of power that is there, where it's like, you think that you've escaped but you haven't yeah because yeah, yeah. even like every institution is in on it yeah everyone knows you cannot escape from the amount of power and influence that this elite society have yeah, that's yeah. the scariest bit that is the worst bit of it see for me it's just the fact that like you're strapped down and yeah. you can see the tools so yeah. like the horror is imagining what could happen to your body like like in that in that view in that in that seeing that looking yeah you can't ever confirm what it is until it happens to you yes and there's a really interesting moment in the second one as well where two guys go in and one of them is like all for it um he he played carl meyer in um desperate housewives for any fans it's him uh he's all for it and he invites his mate along and he pays for him he's like yeah we're gonna do this thing you know it's like the final taboo to like kill another person or whatever he's proper up for it yeah and they I remember there. watching the start of that and then isn't he like tied up and shit no no yes and no so there's the dynamic of the guy not very up for it and the guy who's like all macho like yeah let's get into it and then when it actually comes to having to to kill and to hurt it completely switches by the real macho guy it's like oh fuck i can't believe i've actually done that and he doesn't kill her because he can't he can't bring himself to do it and then yeah. he gets eaten alive by dogs yes <laughs> yes which but i the- do think is just one of the worst ways to possibly die so like i always think about that scene in yeah. um the hunger games you know, where they push the guy off and he's being ripped apart by those, like, oh, dog things. yeah, yeah. And then she has to fire, like, an arrow into it. So I just, I yeah. The thing that, like, I, I think the thing that gets me with all the hostile films is that, like, 
especially with the first, I don't, not so much with the the second one, with the first one and with the final one, it's like the groups of friends that are supposed to be like, like us on screen, like the American travellers are kind of like, they all actually deserve it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Not like, not deserve that quite, but it's like, I'm not rooting for you because you've been is, absolutely awful. I think that allows you to lean into the violence. Yeah. Whereas if yeah, it was yeah. like an innocent person, I don't know if that would make it worse, like more horror. But yeah. So yeah, violent, like gore films like that really don't, they don't bother me as much as like demon film, <laughs> possession films because of like, <laughs> you can't fight a demon. Like you can't like yeah you, you the cannot, intangibility you cannot punch it in the face you can't you just go straight and I, through and I have so many issues with that <laughs> like one of the worst scenes in pa- I can't remember which paranormal activity it is is like where the two girls are sort of playing with each other and they mm. run across like the landing play area bit they come out of the bathroom after doing this stupid thing with the mirror and one of them just hits nothing. <gasps> Um, literally you know when you run into a person runs into the demon and then it picks her up by her hair like oh, literally scared. gets her hair and I'm like no you can't see it yeah. <laughs> you know there's those horrible like I think the way that they set it up as well of like there's a like there's an earthquake and mm. that's the demon arriving oh. and you kind of see the dust from the house where it shook in this earthquake fall onto like the demon but you don't oh. you don't see anything you just see kind of like a bit of shape like sh- and i'm like and it's so big and i'm like demons <laughs> okay. i tell you what you would hate host in that case host terrified me <laughs> i i like I'm scared i can't do it partly as well because i have this stupid thing in my brain and I know they're not real, but my stupid thing is, if I engage with that film, I'm opening up a door to something. <laughs> like, I am welcoming fucking demons into my life. Right? I am just playing with the devil, and I'm like, I'm not here for it. <laughs> I want to stop talking about it now, because I'm in this like lonely office, and I'm going to get picked up by my hair any minute. You've got, what, some weird literature demon? <laughs> Ghost of an old academic. <laughs> So that's why I can't deal with like demony possessiony films because mm. I just yeah it's not for me. Um, that's why I think I didn't find like his house and hereditary. Oh, and Get Out, but Get Out's not really a demon film, is it? But like, I mean, Hereditary had set itself up to be a kind of like it sort of partly is a, it's pan, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. Um, but it's not like demonic in the same sense as other demonic-y sort of films, if that makes sense. So I didn't find it as scary yeah. as I was expecting. No, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's kind of more like, it's not just like reckless kind of violence and chaos and possession. It's like there is a, a mission here. There is like something, this is what is going to happen yeah, yeah, and it needed and, to be done. And, yeah, and there are bits in it, it that like do play into the classic tropes of like, a family that is historically demon worshipping and there's kind of like a thing there yeah yeah and it's like um the family aren't exactly like like happy and tight before it happens anyway do you know what I mean it's not like there's a real happy family that's being torn apart by this demon arriving it's almost like 
yeah, it's like all metaphorical. For yeah, I mean, it's else, all extra stuff, really, but yeah. that's why I didn't find it as scary as like I was expecting. But mm. probably because I know I'm just so frightened of demons. And if there are any demons listening to the Wales Arch Review podcast, please don't come and find me. <laughs> <laughs> I do not claim your energy. I do, I do not. I have not made a pact <laughs> with your master and never intend to either. <laughs> oh, I just, yeah. But I love horror at the same time. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, this week I've chosen Martha O'Brien's review of Rachel Trezai's new book, Easy Meat, mm. which I'm very excited about, having seen lots of people discussing it. And after reading Martha's review, um, I'm definitely going to be picking up a copy. It's described as kind of like a Brexit text. And when I think about people who are talking about like Brexit novels, or um, I often think about like Ali Smith's like seasonal quartet. That's often described as kind yeah. of this Brexit quartet. Um, there's like Jonathan Coe's Middle England and stuff but it's finally a book that's kind of that's focusing on Wales and I think Wales was such a weird outlier not a weird outlier that's the wrong wording but I think people were shocked by Wales's vote to leave in the referendum Mm. so this is a book that is um, returning to that period to 2016 um, to the kind of atmosphere of the referendum isn't like solely just like focused on the referendum it's kind of exploring it through one person's kind of day-to-day living so Mm. um it follows and i quote caleb jenkins former reality tv star and iron man champion however it's just another day at the slaughterhouse easy meat is a novel set on a tipping point where brexit is only a buzzword conspiracy theories are rife and Caleb is desperately trying to get his life back on track. So Brexit's there, but it's not like the sole focus, which I think is interesting. It's kind of the fact that it's... And I think like for a lot of people, as much as like the referendum was huge for us, I think a lot of people were still like going about their day to day. It wasn't like the only thing we were focused on. There were still other things, especially with like Donald Trump being elected and other elections yeah. and whatnot. I mean, it was a busy political time. Um, so this is a text that is focusing on very Welsh concerns, issues of like poverty and how that feeds into the kind of discussions that are happening around Brexit. And more importantly, in my opinion, because of this focus on Wales and Brexit, and it kind of unpacks or challenges from what Martha's written, this, um, idea of like the stupid welsh person for voting leave it kind of interrogates that that idea a bit further oh the thing of like not knowing what's good for you yeah thing, easily led yeah which yeah. i find really i think really important right partly because yes i didn't vote leave um other people that i know did and they have mm. their reasons for it but i think there's kind of this collective stereotyping of people who voted leave as like uneducated but that's oh yeah 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 but that's simply just like it's not true and I think this is a text that's really kind of unpacking the fact that like Brexit for some people was not or was not just about a single certain thing 
Mm. And like other things were intersecting with it that maybe didn't have as much to do with Brexit, but were feeding into why people were voting certain ways. So Martha writes, um, the fact of Wales's voting leave in the 2016 referendum is one that has been framed on many occasions as a foolish decision. The South Wales Valleys were well subsidised by EU grants, forcing many to question Welsh people's motivation in their choice. Trezise demonstrates the lived reality of these grants, however, which, while making aesthetic improvement to areas, made little meaningful change. So, because I've often seen this argument brought up, it's like, well, the Welsh, the valleys were one of the most heavily sort of funded by the EU, had most EU projects. And I think, again, there is kind of this um, challenging of those ideas that we've formed around certain areas that have voted a certain way. Yeah, And I think Trezise's novel is really sort of unpacking that, unpicking it as well through this this character of Caleb, who is not only struggling with his own past as a reality TV star, trying to like be healthy and look after himself, but is also then trapped in kind of this slaughterhouse job with other immigrants. And it's kind of, well, he's Welsh, but the other workers are like Polish and stuff. And he's kind of trying, just trying to make it day to day, which I think really picks up on what a lot of, like what a lot of Welsh people actually face. I think it kind of, it moves away from the very sort of London or capital perspective of Brexit Mm. and is kind of asking well like what does Brexit actually mean for the working class or how how does it intersect with the things that they face in a Mm -hmm. way that like middle England or middle class England doesn't face or like wealthy classes in Wales don't face it so I think it it's challenging that by exploring that area through Caleb and Martha writes, there are countless instances in Easy Meat that force the reader to place themselves once more in 2016, to question how often they thought about the role of the European Union or its direct impact on their everyday life, to wonder how issues like freedom of movement spoke to individuals in poverty who could barely make money for bus change. And I think Martha's really getting that something that like, is so important to understand that like, Yes, everybody's relationship to that vote and to the information around that vote is very different. But when we sort of chastise or label a certain group of people as like dull or like foolish for voting leave. Yeah, yeah. We're not really actually looking at how they are viewing those things. You know, I I think I watched a kind of short like news exploration of Blina Gwent because Blina Gwent receives or received the most EU funding, but had the highest vote of leave. Mm, Yeah. And, like, they spoke to one person, and he was like, I was just trying to stick it to Cameron. (laughs) Mm. You know what I mean? This wasn't about the EU, but it was about being heard, because for a lot of people, this was a chance to feel like they were being heard on a sort of political scale, which, you know, when you're in places that are often not funded by governments in the UK not provided the support, you know, they're both the people that they spoke to in that family both had health issues and were on benefits and benefits were being stripped and stuff. So there's so many things that when we when we say it's foolish, we like glance over, we refuse to actually engage with. And I think this is what is what is crucial about what Trezai's text is doing. She is 
she's not trying I don't think she's trying to provide an answer as to why Wales voted leave she's mm-hmm. just trying to unpack and show that this is very complex and multifaceted and not just a whimsical vote if that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah like as I said like how do perceptions of Brexit like what it means the changes it will bring change when we look outside of London which of course is going to be concerned with immigration going to be concerned with population and stuff like that or middle class concerns of like you know getting certain jobs or whatever speaking about Caleb and his class position Martha writes Caleb's class position and his nostalgia for past success are a poignant reminder of the ways in which both camps in the 2016 referendum preyed on rhetoric of existing class struggle in different ways. Reading Easy Meat in 2021, the devastating reality that working class people in Wales and the entire United Kingdom have not seen tangible improvements in their lives makes hindsight painful. I think for a lot of people as well, this is... I mean, I also think back to like the last general election where like Wrexham flipped to Conservative, partly because they were like, well, Labour's not done anything for us, so maybe try it with the Conservatives and we might see change. I think for a lot of people in certain parts of Wales that don't get the funding, are deprived areas, this was possibly an opportunity to have a say on on what happens to them. Mm. As I said, Easy Meat doesn't really give an answer as to why Wales voted to leave and I I'm not sure it intends to and I think that's it maybe wouldn't work for what the text is exploring and like exam and like sort of exploring Caleb's life and how he's kind of just trying to get on if that makes sense yeah um and and like to end this point this whole sort of thing on easy me and I can't wait to read the book but Martha writes, though Easy Meat does not offer a concrete conclusion to the answer of why Wales voted to leave the European Union, not everyone who voted leave did so in ignorance or, or as a frustrated response to their own life struggle. It spotlights the ways in which, for many, the Brexit vote was a distraction from more real pressing issues at hand. This is a novel about grief poverty and how the disparate struggles of individuals in a society can impact that society in dramatic ways. So this isn't specifically about Brexit. It's about all of the things that then led to a certain way of voting in Brexit. Yeah. Which I think is really, it's just, I feel like innovative is the wrong word, but it's well it's taken this situation which is like by its nature it's a binary thing of like leave or remain and actually just looking at all the complexities and the unexplored aspects of the decision but i also think it's like because of the way that it moves outside of brexit it's not just saying it's brexit it's saying it is all of these things it is things that have been going on for years that then kind of like accumulate that cause sort of these dramatic yeah. changes like that is what it's pointing to it's saying well it can it can be the 10 years prior of like lack of funding or lack of like political sort of invigoration um people not yeah, feeling yeah. like the hood and then when you get this moment it's not specifically about brexit it's about all uh, yeah. of those other things that then lead to a certain moment of like this is my chance to have my vote in something that mm. d- does matter if that makes sense 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess the way that then after that votes happen, the way that you're categorised, that it's it's breaking that apart as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that's got I'm looking forward to um I'm gonna get a copy of that. It sounds really good. Yeah, it sounds very good. In this final segment, we highlight cultural events and projects to look out for in Wales. All links and websites for events, releases and projects that we mention can be found in the episode description. And if you have a project or event coming up that you'd like us to mention in a future episode, send us an email at podcast at walesartsreview.net. Now the magazine supports Welsh and Wales-based creatives. As of the 30th of May, submissions are open for their sixth issue. The theme of this issue is caru, the Welsh verb to love. Love, not just as a word, but as a deed. The magazine accepts poetry, philosophy, including creative critical essays, prose and visual artwork, including photography, and submissions should be sent to nowmag at gmail.com with the subject line including the title of your piece and issue six submission. Make sure you include your name and location within the body of the email and you can follow them on Twitter at nowmag for more information. Submissions close 30th of June and we can't wait to read the finished issue. Welsh Women's Press, Hono, is seeking submissions of short fiction for a new anthology of crime and mystery writing to be co-edited by Caroline Oakley and Catherine Stansfield. Whether you're a published author or debutant, the editors are looking for gripping stories that are complex and convincing, chilling or comforting, and with a crime or a mystery at their heart from the most diverse possible selection of Welsh women writers. Submissions should be between 1,500 and 5,000 words in length and should be previously unpublished. The deadline is the 30th of June 2021, with the publication set for spring 2022. Full information is available on the Hono website and we'll include the link in our description. Until June 26, the Newport Museum and Gallery are hosting the Life on the Levels exhibition from Living Levels, an organisation which seeks to promote and reconnect people to the heritage, wildlife and wild beauty of the historic landscape of the Gwent Levels. The exhibition features a documentary-like photographic response to a series of oral history interviews conducted across the Gwent levels by Marsha Omani and her team of volunteers. In their words, and in these images by photographers Emma Drabble and Lynette Hepburn, Marsha hopes to capture voices and memories in danger of being lost. The legacy of this work will help preserve and interpret the living history of this fascinating, often overlooked corner of Wales, giving the community a voice and a place in the history of this landscape. Booking is essential, so follow the link in our description to preserve your space. And that's it for this episode of the Wales Arts Review podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you want to keep the conversation going, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter at WalesArtsPod or leave us a message on our coffee page, which you can find in the description. Our next episode will be up in a fortnight. See you next time. Sorry, I just kicked my laptop. <laughs> Twenty twenty two just sounds wrong to me. Yeah, it's next year. Yeah. It's when we finish our PhDs. Yeah.
Maybe. 